From Welcome Villain Films, the studio that brought you the horror hit Malum, as well as Beaten to Death and Hunter Killer, comes their newest nightmare, Mind, Body, Spirit, now available on digital. Directed by Alex Haynes and Matthew Miranda, and produced by Dan Asma, Mind, Body, Spirit follows Anya, an aspiring yoga influencer, as she embarks on a ritual practice left behind by her estranged grandmother. What starts as a spiritual self-help guide quickly evolves into something much more sinister. As Anya becomes increasingly obsessed with the mysterious power of the practice, she unwittingly unleashes an otherworldly entity that begins to take control of her life and her videos. Now, Anya must race to unlock the truth before her descent into madness threatens to consume her mind, body, and spirit. During its festival tour, which stops at Chattanooga Film Festival and the Unnamed Footage Festival, Mind, Body, Spirit garnered praise from critics who call it a found footage version of Hereditary and a knockout found footage horror movie for the live stream era. Experience the first ever yoga-themed found footage horror film and don't miss the film viewers have called extremely frightening and upsetting. Available now on digital anywhere you rent or buy movies online, including Prime Video and Apple Plus. Don't touch that dial. You're tuned in to the Dread Podcast Network. You are now listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris, where the most influential voices in horror cinema will spill their guts to the renowned horror director, writer, and producer. Now, here's your host, Mick Garris. From Nice Guy Productions World Headquarters overlooking the glamorous San Fernando Valley, I'm Mick Garris, and this is Postmortem. The role of the producer in film and television is probably the most nebulous of all jobs in the business. Most people understand that the screenwriter writes the script, the director works with all the creative and practical aspects of the movie to put a cohesive visual story on the screen. A cinematographer lights and photographs the film, etc., etc., etc. But what about the producer? Especially in these days, where you can see a dozen or two of them listed on one movie or TV series. There's no simple answer. A producer can earn that title in a number of different ways. In my case, when I produced Masters of Horror, I conceived the concept of the show and was instrumental in putting together writers, directors, and cast for the movies. And there was there to help the filmmakers in any way that I could. It was a creative role. In television, executive producer is the more highfalutin title, whereas in feature films, producer is the king of the hill. I was executive producer on Masters, but on the feature film Unbroken, I also worked under the title of executive producer, as it was much less a hands-on job. The movie was about my father-in-law, Lou Zamperini, and I took the story to the agency that handled it at the time, and we helped get it set up at Universal. Some producers managed to secure the rights to intellectual property, nicknamed IP, books, remake rights to movies and TV shows, life rights to actual individuals, and they can parlay those into becoming movies. In television, most writers in a series writer's room become producers of one sort or another, with creators and showrunners heralded as executive producers. And then there are managers and agents, though it's not really kosher for this to happen with agents, of important elements to the production, whether it's the lead actors or high-end filmmakers who manage to get producer credit just because they represent talent that the studio or network wants to be a part of the show. And then there are the actors themselves who get producing credit either by being a driving force in getting it done or taking the credit to make up for being paid less than their usual rate. And of course, another crucial producer is the kind that raises money to fund the project. One of the most prolific and important film and television producers of our time, and in our genre, is Roy Lee. Beginning his work by finding foreign productions that could be remade for American audiences, he's helped to bring dozens of movies to the big and small screen. We'll find out more about his remarkable output into our dreams and nightmares. So, Roy, welcome to the slab here. Oh, thank you for having me. It's really great to have you here. You're behind so many great movies, TV shows, and the like. You're originally from Brooklyn, and you studied law. How did that interest in law parlay into a love for making movies? 
Well, I don't know if law actually did anything to help me get into the film business. It was more of, in, in one way, could have because of the relationships I got from the law firm that was instrumental in getting me my first job in Hollywood. But it was more of, I went to law school, worked at a law firm, realized after a couple of months that I couldn't have my entire career based on in law and yeah. I just wasn't enjoying myself. So I decided to pack my bags up and leave for California to get into the entertainment business. And actually I was thinking more in the music business because I was uh -huh. more into music than into film or television. And so I was looking for ways to get into A&R an artist and repertoire to find right. new artists and to do that. And uh, in the process also meet with film and TV people based on people that were uh, introduced to me from either the law firm I worked at or the, the actually the restaurant that was in the building that I was wor working at the law firm, that person. Introduced. So I had lots of different connections, um, like I initial connections with people from Hollywood, from just people from Washington, D.C. But your mother wanted you to be a minister. She did, but she's a, she was very religious and she just yeah. wanted, she just wanted anything that was religious based in part of my life. And your father was a doctor. So these are really serious. That's a really serious job. And how, what was their opinion of your going into the enter, entertainment business? You, they had moved to Korea, what, three years before, from Korea, three years before you were born. Yeah, they didn't even know that I was going to work in film. Uh, so they, they just assumed that uh, the job I would get was legal based and that I was going to be a lawyer somewhere in California. And so I never really dispelled that feeling, uh, that belief in their, their minds. And when they saw that I was working on films, I think they just assumed that I, I was the lawyer on the film and lawyers get credits on movies. And it, it, I didn't feel like worrying them about like what I was doing with my future. So I just uh, said, whenever they asked how work's going, I was like, it was busy reading lots of things, doing things. And so. Uh, and so they were supportive. Very supportive. <laughs> That's great. Now, one of the first companies you worked for, Alphaville, with Jim Jacks and Sean Daniels' company, I worked on two versions of The Mummy that never got made there for those guys. Um, you were doing something called tracking. Can you tell us what exactly tracking is in the movie industry? At the time, I don't know if it's still the same as it is back then, as it is now, where my job was to just monitor and be able to tell the the producers of the company what projects were heating up or that were going out through the agencies, the management companies, the the, the publishing companies, and just like give a report at, at the end of each day of like, these are the things that are out there. Because the spec market back then, about 25 years ago, was much more vibrant than it is now. Right. And so like each day, you'd have to develop relationships with other people at other studios where those studios had producer deals and get to know the junior people there who would be receiving and reading all these scripts and books. And I would just have to compile a list and present it to the bosses. And at the end of the day, and they decide whether or not they wanted to try to go after any of the material that was listed there. Were any of the projects you recommended to Alphaville produced? Uh, not at the time that I could think of because it was, uh, it was, there were so many different spec scripts, and at the time, the, the movies that they did while I was there, which was The Mummy and The Jackal right. and uh, the movie called Michael. So those weren't right. um, spec scripts. So you set up a company of your own where you were like tracking 25 different sources called Trackers. Tell me about what that was. The way that everyone was doing it back then was through phones or emails. But email, even then, was just something where uh, it, not everyone was fully versed in how to set up an email account because there wasn't Gmail or I think there might have been an early version of Hotmail. So there were some emails going around. The way that I had created a online system to essentially have one central document or the best way to describe it is most like almost like a Facebook page mm -hmm. that uh, a group of people could be password protected and only them could come in and enter information. So I created a, a template where people could put the names, the script, the, like basically the everything about a project that's being shopped by, by any type of seller in the marketplace. And it would be a document that's shared by the group of people that are in this group. So we generally had between 20 people to 20 to 25 people in each group. And so that took 
everyone's day of compiling this list in order to just have one document that all of us shared. And so something that we used to spend six hours, seven hours a day compiling, we could just do it within 30 minutes. So it became a service that yes. people could tap into. Yes. So there was one group that was created for myself and the group of friends that I was working with and trading information with. And so many other people had heard about it. So then I had just duplicated the IP address and made a different room so that by the within six months, there were probably about 600 different uh, people, executives and producers in town using uh, the, some version of a different group in this tracking database. Well, your work as a producer really kind of kicked off with Asian properties, uh, The Ring, uh, The Grudge, uh, Dark Water. Tell me how you found those original properties and turned them into American movies. This was at the time at which I had already left Alphaville and decided to to produce on my own. And I actually, this is a little bit of a side there here, is that I saw how producers worked and I would looked at Sean and Jim and I would think, this is the easiest job in the world <laughs> because these guys could just like think of an idea and they would just call the studio and say, I want to do a remake of The Jackal or The Mummy. And the studio executive goes, that's a great idea. Here's You can find a writer and we'll pay for it. And if the script comes out, great, we'll make it. If not, doesn't matter, we'll work, work on something else. And so like th that as an educational thing for me, it was like, wow, if that's all you have to do, then why can't anyone do it? But <laughs> I didn't really understand the dynamics because I was so new that Sean and Jim were heads of Universal Pictures. They left on good terms and right. they had hired all the people that were at the studio. So they had this relationship that if they wanted to do something, they could just ask and they would get the, the studio to pay for it. And so I just thought that's, that's what producers do and that's how <laughs> movies were put together. And so me leaving, trying to do that with that mentality behind it also coincided with having created this database and this tracking system where all 600 people had to come to me to be on it. And yeah. so I had that relationship with studio executives, with other producers and other agents who would always ask me like, how's my script doing on the tracking database? And so when I left to become a producer, I found myself in a situation where it wasn't as easy as I thought it was going to be. And <laughs> yeah. so like, I couldn't get the material that, that Sean and Jim were getting. And so it was more like, I wasn't getting the scripts. I wasn't getting the books. I couldn't really put together everything that I wanted to. And so I had to just look for areas of material that other people weren't. And that area just happened to be Asian films because of the fact that at that time, they weren't getting distributed. There wasn't streaming. There wasn't even DVDs to be able to have subtitles. Anytime you did have a, a foreign film, it'd be on VHS. Right. And uh, so the, I just got lucky with someone... Uh, actually, it was like someone at a film festival just like, oh, we're, we're doing this film festival in Asia called, a, it was a Buchan Film Festival. Oh, yeah. yeah. And it was yeah. a film, like, and they, this person was asking me, like, you know, we, we get all the Asian horror and, and uh, like genre pictures, but we can never get the U.S. movies. Mm -hmm. and, and she was just like, here, this is the type of movies we get. And as I was like watching all these these movies that I had never been exposed to. And I was like, The Ring just happened to be one of the first ones that I was like, I saw it and I couldn't believe how scary it was, how yeah. much of a great story it was. That, And I immediately thought that if this were an English language movie, it would be a tremendous success. So track me through that. I've been to Buchan a couple of times and it always is filled with uh, amazing, exciting original movies from all around the world, but mostly Asia. But, tr but lead me through the process of okay, you see the ring at Buchan and acquiring the rights and then going around to the studios. Did you uh, take it to studios, the idea, or how, how did you acquire it? This is also a very unusual situation that I think cannot be replicated by other people is because I had seen the video, like I started watching the video cassette, uh, VHS cassette, it was so scary that I couldn't even finish it because I was living in an apartment in, in West Hollywood. And uh, I had called a friend of mine who lived down the street, this guy, Mark Surian, who happened to be working at, at um, DreamWorks at the time. And I was like, we got the, I have this movie that's so scary. Like, and I was describing it to him. He's like, well, I'm not going to watch it myself, so why don't we just watch it together? And so <laughs> I just drove over to like, it, Actually, I think I just walked over to his house, and we just put the tape in. We watched it, and by the time 
that some, uh, I guess Sadako in that version comes out of the television. Like, we were both jumping out off the couch. And, <laughs> and so the next day he's like, we're, I'm going to get my boss to get this as a remake and I'll make you a producer on it. So And DreamWorks is not the kind of place that puts out horror movies generally. At the time, I don't believe, they might have been developing The Haunting. The Haunting, that, I think, was one thing. Yes. And, yeah. and so, yes, it wasn't a typical uh, DreamWorks type of project. Are you particularly drawn to the horror genre? Uh, yes, I, I love horror movies i mean yeah. I, I growing up I, if i had a choice between any movies it would always be the horror movies and when i i'd be one of those guys that when you go to the video store and in those times they had like the horror sections and yeah. vhs and they just pick movies just based on the title or the cover and i just watch a lot of them what were the ones that excited you the ones that made you feel like i, I want to do this it was most the 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 ones that I think a lot of other people love, like The Exorcist, Evil Dead, uh, right. The Omen, uh, even going back to movies like Psycho, so and Rosemary's Babies, like those are like the five type of like I guess I naming just five off the top of my head that were my favorites. And you were able to revisit Psycho. I mean, I did Psycho Four, and you did Bates Motel, yes. the TV series. So. That was another one where I like it was such a flyer where I remember just going to a, the studio executive at, 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 at nuts at the time. It was like. Uh, Universal's television division and spoke with a the guy there. I was like, I really think that we could do a version of of Psycho, but like make it like the formative years of Norman Bates and put him in Twin Peaks because Twin Peaks was also <laughs> one of the the touchstones of the decision to like want to get into entertainment because I just loved the show Twin Peaks. Right. So you've always been drawn to the outray. Does the interest in ghost stories particularly come from maybe a cultural background? I don't think so. I think okay. it's just more of a the fact that I just like being scared and like yeah. I, I enjoy. And some people don't like it. I like I would love it if I read something that makes me afraid to go downstairs to take something out of the dryer and wash or to do something going to the basement. I just I just like <laughs> that feeling. And what are some of the things that that you uh, would bring you to? Like Poltergeist was a remake of a very successful film. Um, what was that just sudden something that became available to you suddenly yes it's it's there's as you know like there's rights on and 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 the studios have different needs and wants at different times for things they want to develop and that was just uh, something where they wanted to remake it and I was like great we'll try to do it the best thing possible and get the script written and and find uh, the best way to make it yeah so when you do acquire a property um, what is your thought process in doing something that is either a remake or a reboot or a reimagine it, reimagining something that works really well in an Asian film that has never had an American audience? You could remake it exactly, perhaps, but set it in a different cultural place. Um, but if something is familiar, like Poltergeist or The Exorcist, then it would seem that you'd need to go into a new place with it. Yes, and that's always the the the... The design, we always want to make it as, as fresh as possible for the audience and uh, also satisfy fans of the original movie. And so it, 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 it is just, it's hard to be able to know exactly what it is. You just like hear different takes from writers and then read different scripts that are written and just hope for the best because you, you, there's no right or wrong answer most of the time. I mean, because some people, like there's never something that everyone hates or everyone loves. Right. So it's just... So I assume that your role as producer in all these different projects is different, sometimes more creative. You work more directly with the writer, with the director, other times maybe just handing it over and just get the ball rolling. So tell me about the different ways you would approach. There's, there's it, Every project is a different method of how that movie came together. Sometimes it's like, early on where we'd be developing a kernel of an idea, like with the grudge in terms of remaking that it was working with Steven Susco who had devised a take on the movie where we actually watched the original Juan without subtitles, without even knowing oh, what wow. they're doing and what they're saying. And, uh, it, it was because we just, there was no version of it that was subtitled. So we just made up the story and, uh, um, and other times we have subtitles and our, uh, like Aaron Kruger would go off and write the ring and turn in an amazing script. So it, it, it just varies from project to project. Well, there was a great big step taken when you did The Departed. This was Infernal Affairs, a Hong Kong movie, 
Martin Scorsese directing it, wins Best Picture Oscar. Tell me about going from The Ring to The Departed, how that felt. There, the way that it it happened is like, I guess if I backtrack in terms of The Ring being the start of, of, of remaking Asian films, I, I, at the time it was like, saw The Ring probably in production within a year. And I was wow. like, this is the this is the way to do it. This is the easy way. So what do I have to do? I'll just call the producer of the ring and ask him what other things he has. And when I called him that he said, it's Juwan. And he sent me, there was no subtitles. So then, then <laughs> Juwan was made in less than a year. And wow. uh, so a lot of people went to Taka and said in Asia and said, how did you get two of your movies made into big budgeted Hollywood productions? And, to, to, to my luck is that he told him, if you want to get a made, movie made in, in Hollywood, call Roy Lee. And so <laughs> at that point, it was like on a weekly basis, I would get five, six different movies and just like movies that are in production or things that they would just call me. Because this was uh, for them getting a new revenue stream that didn't exist beforehand. So like The Ring and, and Juan both made money on their own and, and th that was great. But then there was an extra slice where they got the remake rights sale. In fact, I think the remake deal for The, the Ring from DreamWorks was more than the budget of the original <laughs> Japanese movie. Wow. And so it, because it, that's the, the way it ended up being because of a, a, a somewhat of a competitive situation between places wanting it. Uh, in fact, it was actually Disney that was the other studio that was that was bidding on it. An uh, odd home for that. Yes. But, yeah. <laughs> and uh, so when Taka told the filmmakers and studios in, in Asia, I would just get these movies. And so like I'd watch every day, I'd watch a couple, watch 15 minutes, something was really good or not. If it wasn't Infernal Affairs just happened to be one of those VHS cassettes that came in. And I just watched it. And I was like immediately just like drawn into it, watch the whole thing. And then you, you I it's one of those things you just know right away that something works. And I, like if there, there was a couple of times in, in my career that I've seen or read something that I was like, this is going to work for sure. And it yeah. was like, the ring was one of them. I, I can't say Juan was another. That was not something I saw that, that was apparent. But Departed was another. Um, the script of The Strangers was another time. Yeah. Um, and uh, the, the It was another one, which is, that's, it was a no-brainer. And the, the most recent one was, was Barbarian, which I read the script within 25 pages. Like after the first act break, I, I was like, and, and where it goes after the first act break, I was like, I, ha I have to be involved with getting this movie made. Well, that's one of the great things about your career as a producer is that you work on the high-level studio movies and also independents like Barbarian. So tell me the difference in the process. And do you feel more freedom when you're in the independent world? Less because there's so much less money? What? How do they compare with one another? I've worked in both worlds as well, and they're different. There's more freedom, but it's more challenging to get the money to make it because of the fact that it's always going to be less money. And so... Uh, with studios, you have to. It's it's great making studio movies because you have all the luxuries. You, everything's yeah. covered. They have experts in every area. You don't have to be involved with every aspect of making sure the movie stays together. Um, so there's good and bad uh, of that of going from studio to independent. But like, I, I just prefer some of these indie movies like Barbarian because they do things that I want to see that the studios would normally think that wouldn't work. And so even right. with Barbarian, every studio, uh, except for Disney, thought the movie didn't work. And thought the script didn't work. And, wow. and some of them even thought even after the movie's made that it wouldn't work because the, the act break just was too jarring for people. <laughs> and so, but it's like, I, I enjoy seeing the audience reaction and getting that. Like, that's the best thing about making a movie like Barbarian is like having it come out and people really enjoying it. Well, tell me about the first time you saw it with a, a paying audience. The, well, it was the paying, it's just like, I, I just enjoy because like you see the gas from the screams because like, like actually the, the some of the audience we we we, sh we shot on camera so that we could use for commercial and those reactions are real and that's that that's one of the things that the only thing that I was bummed out about is like thinking about like God I wish I could have been one of those people like yeah. it was impossible <laughs> for me to ever experience it like any of them because I've already read the script I already know every detail of what's happening next but uh, it, it was just such such a joy I went with with Zach and and JD and Rafi to so many paid screenings just to be enjoying it with the audience. Oh, I remember when Sleepwalkers opened, seeing it at the Chinese theater in a 1,200-seat theater on opening night. 
packed and watching that reaction. There's nothing like, I guess, if you make a comedy that's successful, you have that instantaneous feedback from an audience. But when you've got the thrills and the chills and the screams and the gripping of the arms of the chair and you're surrounded by that, it's such a great feeling, isn't it? Yeah, it is such a great feeling. And it's not replicated in watching it on your computer or at home. It's no. like horror movies or thrillers. They, they, you, part of the experience is experiencing with other people or having it in a situation where you're not distracted by your phone, by anything that lights in the house. You're in a cl cl closed, dark room that uh, you could just fully get immersed in, in the movie. Well, you got your reputation by being a master of IP and, and acquiring intellectual property in different areas, whether it's books or remaking or what. What was the first time where you had a fully original project that you set up that, that was not based on a previously existing property? The, the one that I remember most is The Strangers, which was... Uh, Brian Bertino had written a script that was called Faces, actually, mm. and it was a semi-finalist in the Nichols Fellowship whenever oh. they send out the lists of, of, of projects and uh, that didn't make it to the final cut, and this was like the semi-final. So it wasn't even the, 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 the shortlist. It was right <clears throat> before it, and they do break it out into genres, and so it was something uh, Sonny Molly, who was working for me at the time, had, had flagged as something, and... Uh, as soon as I read it, like it was it, like the movie was scary, but the script was terrifying. Really? Yeah. Wow. Do you think the script was more terrifying than the movie? Hmm. Well, it's hard to, to say because like for me, you my first experience was, was, was reading the script. So <laughs> yeah. that was a scary uh, experience. But for the audience who had not read the script, it might have been more or less. I, I can't say because I never got the scare that I got wa watching the movie by reading the script. Can you remember the last time you went to a movie that was not your own where you had that reaction? The the one that I enjoyed most and thought like this is a, a horror classic was The Conjuring. Like the, uh. the, the scene where she approaches the, the 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 closet area and the the creature jumps off the 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 top of the bookshelf or whatever it was i jumped out of my seat and that was like the last time i was like fully scared out of my mind well one of the most interesting films of yours that i've seen that is so unique and so original and not enough people know about it is his house tell me how that came together because it's very it's not like everything else on your resume. That one was, and I'm glad you're asking about this one because it was something where I was watching short films on YouTube and there was a short film part of like a series made in the UK called Fright Bites, which were short little horror things done by young directors uh, working in the UK. And there was one called Tickle Monster. And huh. I, I watched Tickle Monster and it scared me, uh, uh, like because I was maybe it was just I was watching it in the dark in my my bedroom and, and I had headphones on and it was like the sound was great and it it jarred me and so I watched it again and I was like wow this is great and so I went on YouTube and on you know you go onto the about uh, and, and Remy Weeks and I just right. uh, sent a message on YouTube because he had posted himself and said this is an amazing short short film do you ever want to try to adapt it into a feature film? And because thematically it's actually similar to what um, his house is. And so he's really? like, as a matter of fact, I, I have been thinking about adapting this, but it's a totally different take on a house that takes your fears and twists it on you. And so he had sent me the script and uh, he had actually had two uh, producers attached and uh, I, I read it and I was like, I, I love this script. I could get this thing made easily. And because it was, it, it was something, like another time where I read it and immediately thought, it, 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 this movie has to get made. And so um, you read and see, actually the company that finances um, Barbarian read the script, wanted to finance it. We were originally thinking we we're going to make it, like Remy had said he need, just need, want, thought he'd make it for a million pounds, which at the time was 1.5 million. Right. And when I spoke with Michael Schaefer, he's like, no, we don't make movies for under $10 million. <laughs> and so he's like, your budget's now $11 million and go figure out how to make it. And so we got to make it for eleven. And this was acquired by Netflix. Talk about the difference where you don't have to worry about box office. 
this was something where it was a challenge. It wasn't, it was, it could have been a challenge to try to sell that movie to the public because it is a slower paced movie that yeah. isn't like relying a lot on jump scares. And you can't even tell it's a horror movie for a half an hour. True. It, you think it could be a drama, which yeah. I, was what I loved about it. And yeah. uh, so I suspect that you read and see you got a little cold feet plus the fact that Disney didn't want to release it and such like, like they, they all passed on it. And so it was something that, they could have released it theatrically through a different distributor or they had an offer from Netflix that was pre Sundance. So um, they didn't even know what they had because they decided because it was a, a preemptive offer before Sundance that uh, it was something they just wanted to take and, and just, uh, but then when it came out, it was well received. It's, uh, it was a hundred percent of Rotten Tomatoes. It, the yeah. filmmaker, Remy Weeks won the BAFTA for best new filmmaker. So it was all around a good experience for everyone. But how great not to have to worry about the box office receipts. Yeah, that was it, it, like, in some movies, I would have been disappointed. Like if it was Barbarian, if had we gone straight to streaming, I really would have been disappointed because right. I really thought that that movie needed a theatrical experience. But his house didn't necessarily need that theatrical. Yeah, experience. and it's a tougher sell. Yes, you know, to try and sell tickets to something that is not easily explained. Yes. Yeah. So, how involved are you in the marketing of the films that you produce? I rarely get involved in the marketing uh, unless, other than um, them giving uh, me access to what their plans. And nine times out of ten, it's great. Disney's marketing for Barbarian <laughs> was fantastic. Like sometimes I'd suggest a thing or two here and there, and and so would everyone else. Zach, Zach actually got involved much more and gave much more detailed notes. I was like, yeah, that looks great. That's just in my job because like I'm not equipped to be like the guy who knows exactly how to sell a movie but i know what what i like and so if they're presenting something and they're experts at doing it presenting it to me is like this looks great and i was like yeah we they, we tested it we did this the the only thing we pushed back on for barbarian is that the studio wanted to call it get the f out and uh, <laughs> uh which we uh Thought, you know, because Get Out was another movie that yeah, also joined yeah. Peel. And, and it also made it feel like a different movie than what it was. Um, so, But that was the only pushback beyond Barbarian. Well, what a great experience, too, to do something independent that everybody has poo-pooed, getting the Rotten Tomato scores, getting it so well-received, and it opening at number one at the box office. Yeah. That was, had to be a, a little bit of a victory lap there. I was very happy with it. I, and everyone involved is happy with what it is because of the fact that it is a tiny movie that's got released by a major studio in Disney of all places. And so the fact that it even got released is a win for everyone. And the fact that it did... D decent business is even better. Well, who would imagine taking The Exorcist and turning it into a TV series? So how did that come about? Because it's not really like the movie, but it has elements, satisfying elements of the movie, and it's very much its own animal and really well done. I mean, it's beautifully mounted and beautifully told and elaborately told. So what was the process that went from the Bill Blatty, William Friedkin movie to the TV series. I actually had to fly out to Bethesda, Maryland to meet with Bill Blatty in order really? to get his blessing because the deal for uh, The Exorcist when he made it was, didn't even consider the idea of it being a, a, uh, a television series. And so any type of future version got the payment that the movie got and so I had to convince him to accept a smaller fee in order for a successful TV show to progress. And he agreed and got it going. If you could believe it, we were originally going to do a Nick Reffin version of it because Nick was the first person wow. I talked to about it and he'd wanted to do it. But uh, we ended up not going the, the, the uh, I guess, um, pay her like uh, on pay TV or, or, right. or premium television and go on network. So it, it got a little bit diluted for what originally, what it was supposed to be, which was going to be really horrific. So and it was going to be like an HBO or Showtime and it turned th into that's Fox. What, that's what we were originally thinking about. And and when it goes on network, as you know, it has to be adhered to certain constraints. Yeah. And so Fox a little less than the others, but still. Tell me about that process of working with the network and... You know, studios give notes and do all of their involve themselves as deeply as they can. But it seems in television there are even more coming from more directions. 
Yeah, well, to tell you the truth, as a non-writing producer, which is an odd thing to call myself, which is <laughs> that's what they call me in television, I didn't really get involved with the day-to-day nuts and bolts of things. I like to get involved with like the initial conception of of an idea and like what it could be, and then at that point, it's it was it was off to races. On uh, like, so you're an enabler. Yeah. Yes. So did you go to the set much, or did it shoot in Mexico? Uh, it shot in Chicago, I believe. And that was, oh, really? Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Man. Yeah, so. Well, there were some very convincing, yeah. I guess, second unit stuff yes. that was pretty beautiful. Yeah. So do you find yourself visiting the set much on your productions? I generally go for the first week and maybe other times if there's a trickier situation or there's something I really am in, in, in anticipating wanting to see how they shoot it. And uh, But my day-to-day is a lot of more meetings and phone calls and things. So I, I tend to not be the day-to-day on set because it's like by that time, you already have the scripts set. You have the vision of the director that you've already agreed to. You have experts in the field in every area. You have the the line producer, and you have other producers most likely already being there. So it's like, unless that I am the only person on it, which is rare, that I, like I'm not going to be there. The, the the only time that the studio actually wanted any to be the whole there the whole time was the strangers, and that was because it was like such a smaller production. Was it a difficult shoot? It wasn't. It was we shot in Florida, South Carolina, and it was actually quite easy. So you've worked with every kind of director from Marty Scorsese to many first-time directors. I would imagine it would be a challenge to give a director, a first-time director, his first feature film. So how do you test the waters? I mean, you, you've talked about how Remy Weeks had done a short that impressed you and that sort of thing, but you've done it more than one time. Is, is, is that enough to see something that they've done and then have a great pitch? it all comes with a great script if you have a yeah. great script then we could you could storyboard photoboard and plan out each shot and and just know what you're getting into and so um there are other times that like i'll, I'll also work with uh with a, another established director i work a lot with sam Raimi to oh, oversee yeah. it and so he's, he's like the great greatest mentor for a lot of different directors and so it, it just varies from project to project and you could also tell based on some of the things they've shot like with remy like when i saw that short it was masterful and uh, even though it was called uh, tickle monster it was still like <laughs> fantastic <clears throat> yeah really fascinating stuff and it's still on youtube so like when you do it I, I'll, I'll actually post it up there so all right i'm gonna have to check yeah. that out so so what are the ones that have been most problematic for you and and what kind of fires have you as the producer had to put out well, the problematic ones are the movies that just don't work, and it's ah. like the, the the I don't want to name specific no, titles, but it's like sometimes you just can't fix it. It's just like it just you took some swings and it just didn't work, and it's always the worst feeling of like knowing that it's just not working, and you're just trying to make it as good as possible, and that's like putting out fires. It's just like improving it incrementally, or or trying to do some reshoots, and 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 with the limited amount of money that they'll give you to do it, or that you have left over with contingencies, um, it's that is I find the most problem because like everyone wants the movie to be great, but it just it, you can't have everything turn out great. What would you describe the job of a producer as being? I mean, in my introduction, we talked about the broad range of producers. But from your perspective, what is a producer's job? A producer's job is to, is to be able to uh, put the entire production, like from the conception to to the production, just make sure everything stays on course. And it's just sort of like the 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 architect of, hmm. of a building because like the architect is not doing everything in it like the from the 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 foreman's job or any of the labor or any of those things that are happening but they they designed it they look understood the process of like what type of building would be able to go in that place and like and and or, or even like a head chef of a place like they could design the menu and do everything and then it just starts to run on its own but it's it's just like the first person usually one of the first people in in order to to uh, identify something that they think that will work towards the, uh, the, a, a theatrical experience or a, a television show. 
is that still your primary uh, job and interest is finding material to turn into a movie? That's my favorite part of, yeah. uh, of producing. It's like, and sometimes like if you wanted to simplify it a bit, like you could say it's three different portions. There's the, the, the portion of identification, like putting together the script, raising the, like raising the money to actually get the process started and, and working on casting it. So that's like the first third. And the, the middle third is the actual production of like putting like everything it takes to actually shoot the movie and, and like working with the line producers and making sure everything co is coordinated. And that, that is like people have just, they are great at that. And there's other people that are great in the post-production marketing and release of the movie. And so like the, the, some people could be experts and great all three areas. I think my, my skills excel in the first part because I feel like I can identify things that will work and that will be popular and that, from there, if I could find the the other pieces of people that know that could do the production and do everything and do the release post everything in releasing, then we all work in harmony together on a successful movie. What are the ones that got away? What are the ones that that you had a passion for but just couldn't get them off the ground? Hmm. Hmm. Well, the, now I'm in the process of putting some things together that are challenging because that's at this point in my career, I, I've made a lot of movies. And yeah. so like I am challenged not by the studio movies. I, I know how to put together a studio movie. I know how to get things that they want to make. I want to do the challenging ones like Barbarian. And the next one that's the biggest challenge is actually there's two that I'm, that are challenged that one's actually going to go, which is this movie called Psycho Killer. Um, oh yeah. Uh, by Andrew Kevin Walker. So Saw that, that one, on your Twitter. Yeah. Feed, so yeah. that one feels like it's on rails to be in production by the first second quarter of next year. So that one just took a long time and it was just challenging to get people to, uh, feel like it's because it's a very unconventional script like uh, Barbarian is where it's like the lead character isn't introduced in the first act um, but the other one that I'm trying is, is is The Sky is Falling I don't know if you've ever heard of the script no. by Eric Singer and Howard Roth no uh, I, I've, I have a studio that wants to make it I have actors that are huge that want to do it and it's Howard Roth is the person that's blocking. He just doesn't want to see the movie made for some oh. reason or another. So if anyone listening who knows Howard Roth or <laughs> knows his brother, Trevor Roth, who runs Rottenberry Productions, right. convince them to engage in making this movie, the, the Sky is Falling. We can trust Roy Lee. Yes. Yeah. So yeah, that one is about uh, two priests who uncover evidence that God does not exist. Mm -hmm. And so they just realize they've just devoted their whole lives for nothing. And so they want to just go out and have fun. So they're just like going back and doing a, like a road trip, doing all these drugs and killing people and not really caring because <clears throat> they know that nothing matters. And so the church in this time period is now a unified church of all religions, hires a born again assassin to kill these two priests and promising him penance before in order to prevent them from going public with this information. And so it's just this rollicking time of just like a road trip action. It's just a, a gonzo script. Here's my $15. I'm, yes. I'm ready for that. Yes. Yeah. So Speaking of that and of The Exorcist, do you find that there was any influence from your mother's uh, religious uh, beliefs that might feed into some of the projects that interest you? Maybe in the sense that my first film experiences were movies like The Exorcist and The Omen. And those yeah. are movies that my mother took me to the theaters thinking that this is going to scare uh, me into believing in God and, and believing that if I do bad things, these are things that will happen to you. And evil does exist and uh, Satan exists. And so th that permeated in probably everything I saw growing up. Interesting. So was there one project that maybe you worked for years on that you weren't able to get off the ground? Hmm. Years on. Um, I can't think of any at this or moment. Or any great frustrations of something you really had a passion for that you weren't able to get it flying. I'm telling the, the 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 two are the, the skies falling in and psycho. They're new. They're yeah. gonna happen. Okay. Um, <laughs> never got made. Um, no. Like generally, if like most projects that I've really pushed hard for, um, got made. Well, I'm I'm fascinated by a couple of the projects because you produced the remake of the Stand miniseries, which I directed. 
and uh, and just how that came about. Josh Boone, I assume, uh, was attached as the writer uh, of the first and the first couple of episodes. So tell me about how that w- was born and grew. God, that was it was such a weird and, and it seems like all of these were weird situations because it was it's all about like who was running a specific studio at the time that i had a relationship with who was able to initiate the process and like that one um it, it was a weird rights deal because i had been uh, circling that thing for many years and at the time it was cbs had some rights to it right. because of the the, the whole video they had and yeah. uh they weren't able to do it and but the person that was running the place at the time wolfgang hammer had said well if you could figure out how to get somebody at least like warner brothers to make it then we'll grant the rights there and so it was um a deal done with warner brothers because that was where i had a deal at the time to develop it and it was developed never got off the ground there and scripts were written and everyone from Scott Cooper to Ben Affleck and even uh, um, uh, Josh Boone was the last director attached who had done a draft. And uh, once that rights lapsed, went back to CBS, which then was part of uh, uh, CBS CBS All All Access. Access. And so they had all this um, materials that were developed and they wanted to make a splashy title and the the stand was one of them and so they just called and said asked if they wanted if we wanted to try to resuscitate it with josh boone well especially because this was a nascent uh streamer cbs all access and something that big i, I know it was very expensive it, it was over a hundred million dollars for this nine episode miniseries yes so that that's a big train to move. Tell me about the process of organizing the cars. Again, that's television. Where yeah. my skill set is mostly in the film side of things. So, like, it was just more of like I read the scripts, gave some comments. That was it. Like the day-to-day productions, I wasn't that involved with. Trusting the creatives. Yes. Which is something that every writer and director would like to have a producer who trusts the creatives. Yeah, I mean, the, the, like with his house, with with Barbarian, with it's it's just like. Once you have a great script and you believe in the filmmaker, you just let them do their thing. And with Dr. Sleep, you had Mike Flanagan, somebody who's just one of the best around right now. And I had done the Shining miniseries, and so I always felt a a closeness to that story because of that relationship and the like. But, um, you know, there were changes made from the book and the like, but you were basically able to cheerlead Mike through how he wanted to present the film. That one was less so because I, the, I was more the exec producer on that one, and uh, Trevor Macy, his partner, was more the day-to-day working with him on the, the, the actual production. Well, tell me, as you look back over this vast history of dozens of movies and television shows, you want, tell me two or three that you really hope to be remembered for. Well, actually, every movie that I make, actually from now on, in general, I want to make movies that 25 years later, somebody would be like, that was my favorite movie. Like, in fact, I actually think it's Barbarian. Like, I've never had a movie with so many people reach out and say how much they love that movie. And I actually, what's funny enough, some people just call me and said, you got to see this movie Barbarian. And (laughs) and I was like, "Uh, yeah, I know all about it. It's actually quite funny because like everyone knows I do like horror. And so other people who don't pay that much attention to who's behind these movies would call me and say, you should see this movie. And uh, so that's, that's just the greatest feeling. And and, and just like having a movie that it's remembered in, in time, like the evil dead or like the five, movies i mentioned i believe that the strangers could be in that category the barbarian could be in that category the ring could be in that category it can be in that category and so it just like i want to strive to have movies that are remembered and not just like something that are just sort of like people sort of remember it like people like really push hard for like yeah, say, just not making money but being something special yeah i i, I don't I, like, I say this i don't like i yes i do care about the box office so that everyone is satisfied makes money and everyone's happy i'm more about like making something great will there be a barbarian too if there is it'd be a prequel because there's not really much you could do with <laughs> yeah. the place and uh and there are 40 years of time period to deal with with mother and what happens with her um, because she is a victim. And so I I do know that there are discussions about it, but 
it's just discussion. I, I don't think Zach will write or direct it. He, he, he might conceive of things and he'll definitely uh, have to approve of anything because we would never want to do anything that he doesn't like on this. Well, it's so much a part of his personality. Yeah, yeah. And, and that seems to be a hallmark of the films you produced as well. You work with directors who have a cinematic personality. Uh, well, that's, it, I, I mean, it's because you just try to gravitate towards people that you believe in and you you enjoy watching their, their reels or previous movies. So it's... Tell me about the joys of Sam Raimi. We've worked together a couple of times. He's worked for me as an actor in The Stand and in The Shining. I worked for him as an actor in The Quick and the Dead. And he's such a one-of-a-kind guy. Tell me about your experience. He is just, and I mean this wholeheartedly, one of the nicest people in Hollywood yeah. that I've ever encountered. Uh, he's the most humble, and he is just so generous with his time. Yeah, well, it's great to hear about what you've got coming up uh, and and. What are the things that are most exciting? How far along are the things that you've got in the pipeline? I have about 100 things in the pipeline right wow. now. And so it's it's hard to say which one is going to go first because the, the process of, of development for me is a little bit different from anyone else in Hollywood because I always looked at it from like a point of view that projects that are in development are not getting made. And right. it's it's like I looked at the the... the way that a studio would develop something and actually put something in development and watch the evolution of it and probably about four under five percent for sure actually got made and yeah. so when I started my career I was like ah, I, I need to get 20 projects in development to even have a shot of getting one of those made and so I had this process of like okay I'm going to get 25 Asian remakes set up and I hope to get one of those made. And right. so, wow. so I broke it down to, okay, I'm going to set up one a month uh, for the next two years and just space them out. Cause actually each one requires meetings and, and pitches right. and everything. So I just like spaced them out. So I had all these 25 movies lined up to then set up one by one and uh, 18 of them got made actually. And so wow. then the, 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 <laughs> the success rate was much better. And so Good the, the, yeah, average. yeah. And so it, it was, uh, and so I just kept that going for the past 20 years of doing that of developing and just like one a month one a month and uh so that's why i have so many in development but uh you know some get made and some die on the vine because the script doesn't come in and so i'd say right now maybe actually between 50 and 100 are really active in terms of like the possibility of them getting made it's why i write everything on spec beforehand <laughs> that process is agonizing yeah um, do you still go to festivals around the world? I, I do. I just got back from Venice, and uh, I, I was hoping to go to Toronto. And uh, I, I love the the horror film festivals. Yeah. And, and I think I'm actually going to a festival. And I, I'm glad you reminded me because I committed to it. And, I, and my schedule's getting full, but I, I think I'm going to the Austin Film Festival. Oh, great. Um, that's the Screenwriter Festival. Which right. Really I've been there. I've yeah. done some panels there. It's a really great one. Yeah. Um, what do you love about making movies? Huh. I guess you know some people like the, the 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 glamour of things of like the parties. I, I I just like the idea of creating something that's memorable, and people will will look back in history of like uh, you know you could, everyone can make money, but everyone can't just make something that that is like mem like memorable for for people to like think back of like this is my favorite movie, and uh, that's the, the most enjoying is like when I hear from people saying how much they love a movie. Well, you got such a high batting average, Roy Lee. Thank you so much for joining us on the show, and I hope everybody goes out there and sees Barbarian. You're welcome. This is a pleasure. Thank you for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every Wednesday and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Thank you for listening to the Dread Podcast Network.